Listener-supported KFUO invites you to listen live to our annual share It's your opportunity to show your support to KFUO. If you can't join us live, please prayerfully consider supporting us by calling 314-996-1518 and asking about our giving levels. You can also click the Give Now button on our webpage. Share 2017, April 20th, 21st, and 22nd. Welcome to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. It is Maundy Thursday. We're in Holy Week. Good Friday tomorrow, Easter Saturday, and uh, or Holy Saturday, I should say, Easter Vigil, and uh, Easter or Resurrection Sunday just around the corner. How do you, what are the many things that we do, the many traditions and practices that we hold during Lent, Holy Week, and Easter how do you teach your children about them, and are they are, are they good traditions? What can we learn from them? What are the origins of these traditions? We'll learn more about those in just a moment. Thanks to our underwriter, Concordia University, Wisconsin, for supporting Faith and Family. You can find out more about them on our website, kfuo.org. Look for the Concordia University, Wisconsin logo in the sponsor section. Joining me by phone this morning, the Reverend Christopher Cipherline, Pastor Emanuel Lutheran Church in Adele, Wisconsin. Pastor Cipherline, welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you, Andy. Glad to have you with us today and a blessed Monday Thursday to you and the saints there at Emanuel Lutheran Church. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. We have... Uh, many traditions for Lent, Holy Week, and Easter, and I'm sure that uh, you carry out many of those at Emmanuel Lutheran Church, and we'll talk about those in just a little bit. Let's learn a little bit about Emmanuel Lutheran Church uh, before we get too far into our conversation. Adele, Wisconsin, where would we find that? You had mentioned Concordia, Wisconsin being a sponsor of the program. We're just uh, 30 miles north of uh, Concordia, Wisconsin, which is located in Mequon. And um, we're in Sheboygan County. It's the land of uh, Kohler Toilets, Johnsonville Sausage, and, you know, plenty of beer, too. (laughs) Well, uh, Emmanuel, I'm sure the the saints gather for uh, many traditions and the services to receive God's good gifts during Holy Week, well, Lent, Holy Week, and Easter. What are some uh, some of the ways that Lent and Holy Week and Easter are observed at Emmanuel? Yes. Um, I would say that over the, over the course of the last 15 years, our congregation has, has wanted to heighten their celebration of, of, of Lent um, and specifically Holy Week. Uh, we have our usual um, Lutheran traditions surrounding the practice of Lent, our wonderful midweek services. While many of our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, around the world uh, do some sort of fasting during the, during the season of Lent. Uh, Lutherans have always advocated a fast of time, as it were, to receive the Lord's gifts, give an extra hour of the week to uh, hear about the Passion and uh, the stories thereof. Um, during Holy Week, though, uh, you know, busy schedule here. We have a smaller parish. Um, on average, we uh, have around 85 people on a Sunday. We have a midweek service as well with, uh, with more ind- individuals coming for that. Um, however, we, we have quite, uh, quite the schedule. 
So what we do is uh, we have uh, Wednesday last night we had um, something called the Scriptural Stations of the Cross, uh, 14 stations. Um, the uh, early pilgrims to Jerusalem would um, go along the road and trace the steps that Jesus made to the cross, and um, many people couldn't go to Jerusalem but wanted to carry that devotion from the Holy Land back to their back to their homes and churches, and so this devotion has developed over the last around 500 years. Uh, we observe a, a particular type of, that, of devotion where it just emphasizes the scriptural stations. It's a great service for the children of our congregation, as they really love to see. We have pictures um, that we set up um, around the church, around our chapel, and different places around the church. And uh, we gather kind of uh, to hear a scripture, to sing a stanza of a hymn, and uh, to have a little uh, meditation, uh, about five seconds, ten seconds, on each picture that's, that's been painted. And the children especially go to the front of the crowd, and they love looking at those pictures and participating in that in a special way. really has the opportunity to teach them about what actually happened um, during Holy Week, what Jesus did as he, uh, you know, he says also, take up the cross and follow after me. So uh, we, do, we do the same even as we follow Jesus in his footsteps. Can you give us an example of what perhaps one of those pictures, one of those images might be uh, where to, to help one reflect and meditate on God's Word? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the pictures are of, of the various you know, stations, uh, starting with the Garden of Gethsemane, going all the way to the tomb. So um, each picture was uh, done by a particular artist, and we have his permission to um, reproduce those, um, those stations. Um, for example, you know, the first station... Um, is of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and um, it's of Jesus uh, laying there praying in anguish, and um, uh, the scene is rather dark, and uh, three trees in the background uh, kind of bent, as it were, a picture kind of the three disciples that are sleeping. So we think about that picture, and uh, we think about what Christ did and his anguish, and also um, our response to that, how in the midst of uh, Jesus' hour of greatest need, Hey, you know, we didn't we didn't quite uh, stick up and wait for him. So, um, so that's the Stations of the Cross that we uh, that we do on Wednesdays of Holy Week. Um, Thursday is our Monday Thursday service. Um, we observe a practice in our congregation that um, you know um, has really been enjoyed and probably appreciated and accepted by the congregation because of its acceptance by the little children. Um, in our hymnal, Lutheran Service Book, we have the option of something called Corporate Confession and Absolution. I had the opportunity to see this at seminary when I went to seminary, but even more, I had the opportunity when I went on my honeymoon to Germany. Uh, we had the opportunity to um, go to church in Germany at uh, several of the Zelt congregations that we are in fellowship with. And uh, what a wonderful thing to participate in the liturgy, uh, not know German very well, but know exactly what's being said and spoken. And uh, it was great on Monday, Thursday, where we could bow the knee next to our brothers and sisters in Christ in Germany and confess our sins but receive an individual absolution. So corporate confession um, at the beginning of the service is an opportunity to hear kind of an extended discourse on um, our need for confession and repentance. Um, the congregation has the opportunity to confess their sins in a, in a normal um, uh, in, a, in, in a normal way that they might normally do that. However, they come forward to the kneeling benches to receive an individual 
uh, absolution and even their name uh, spoken before that absolution. Um, the congregation is a little tenuous about that at first, but when they saw the joy of the children, that they too could come forward to receive that gift of forgiveness. The smiles on the little children's faces um, helped the um, older ones see, you know, I too can proclaim that I'm a sinner. And uh, we always like to say that as Lutherans we like to confess our sins, but sometimes actually bowing the knee individually and saying, you know, it's me, I'm the one who has sinned and gone astray. I'm the one who needs this absolution. Uh, it's been a powerful, a par- a, a powerful teaching tool uh, in our congregation for our need for forgiveness and um, the joy that Christ has in, in giving us the absolution. So probably the rest of our service is, you know, uh, pretty similar to many Monday, Thursday celebrations. We don't do a foot washing. The foot washing is uh, practiced in some churches. Um, you know, when we think about Monday, Thursday, and we think about that term, man- Maundy, you know, a-, a new mandate I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another even I- as I have loved you. That was spoken right after the foot washing. And uh, Jesus has not instituted, he wasn't instituting there that we all go around and wash each other's feet literally. Uh, what he was instituting there was the ministry of forgiveness, the ministry of absolution. When Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, Jesus was saying to these disciples, look what I just did for you. I washed your feet. I got up from the table. Indeed, I, the greatest, became the least. And I must do this for you. Unless you are washed, you have no part. You have no part with me. And uh, Jesus said, this is what you disciples need to be about. So um, as a congregation, rather than doing the foot washing, we like to focus upon what Jesus was, was really teaching and focusing on, which was the forgiveness of sins, the individual washing of people's feet. It's fulfilled in our congregation on Monday, Thursday, by the individual absolution, where their, their sins are laid at Jesus, at Jesus' cross. So that's, um, that's our Monday, Thursday celebration. And uh, again, the children rejoice to, I, I can come up and receive uh, Jesus' forgiveness to even me, all baptized Christians, <laughs> come forward to receive even, even the little ones uh, uh, right out of the womb. Good Friday. Um, we, we have something called a treori service. Um, treori translated means three-hour. Jesus uh, was uh, on the cross for three hours, even, even more than that. And we observe the practice of being in church from noon to three. Uh, it's a come-and-go service. Not everyone can stay for all, serv- all the services. Um, all the services are different and encompass the whole and complete um, panoply of devotions that are presented to the church for uh, for a Good Friday celebration. We have three services: uh, uh, Passion reading and the Great Good Friday bidding prayer and preaching. Um, that we have the first service. The second service is um, a simple Holy Communion service, and the third service is a Vespers um, Vespers style service with uh, with preaching as well. And um, we do have a guest preacher for that service from noon to three, and it's long. It's difficult, but it's very rewarding to sit there for three hours and to participate in these ancient devotions, the adoration of the cross, um, the, the, the reproaches, um, what have I done to you, O my people, um, singing of the reproaches, and some of those ancient hymns that we love and know so so well as, as Lutherans and are some of our favorites. Um, 
we have the opportunity to gather and, and, and close it all off with, with, with indeed what, what Christ has done for our salvation. There will be a, here in St. Louis, there will be a tray or a service as well. We'll be broadcasting that live tomorrow from noon to about three as well. So uh, there will be many saints around the country gathering together for the tray or a service. That's awesome. That is great. You know, one of the things that's a part of uh, the liturgy for Good Friday is, is a particular statement that says something along the lines of, you know, with, with, your, uh, with your cross and, and redemption, joy has filled the whole world. That's, that's not a word that we maybe as Lutherans associate with Good Friday. Sometimes for us, Good Friday becomes a pity party for Jesus, or, or we're supposed to feel sad for Christ, or you know, how are we supposed to think about this day? But I really think that that statement gets to the heart, that we too can, yes, mourn our sin. That is the purpose of the day. You know, Jesus said to the weeping women along, alongside that he went, as he went the way of the cross, what did he say? He said, no, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. So don't feel sorry for me. I'm doing this for, for the joy that was set before me in doing the cross. So uh, these days are not days of, as it were, uh, obligation or, or days where we, we kind of pain ourselves by doing all these things, but days where we really, we, we mourn our sin, but it's, it's, it's mourning with joy. Uh, and the joy of the resurrection uh, indeed spills forward even even to Good Friday, even to Monday, Thursday, as we see Jesus saying, I, did, I didn't do this because I had to. I did it indeed because I, I desired it for you, for you. There's a reason we call it Good Friday. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I'm told that, you know, um, in our English-speaking countries are some of the only ones that, that have that way of, of speaking. Um, uh, Good Friday is called uh, different different things throughout the world, and uh, I think it's a great way of, uh, of of speaking about this day. It is a it is a great day. It is the best day. Thank God it's Friday. Uh, my redemption is secure in Jesus. So Saturday um, in our congregation, we do the Easter vigil. We do have confirmation um, celebrated on um, uh, uh, also on the Easter vigil, um, and the Easter vigil for our congregation has been a service that was new to our parish, but uh, has been well appreciated uh, and accepted. Um, it is a it is a service in our hymnal, and we observe it um, uh, in, in in that manner that's uh, prescribed by the Lutheran service uh, book. Uh, basically, the service for those who aren't familiar with it is a service where we recount all those ways in which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ um, redeemed, rescued, and saved His people in the Old Testament. It's a time to hear about the Garden of Eden. It's a time to hear about the Red Sea crossing. It's a time to hear about Noah. It's a time to hear about the, the three men in the fiery furnace. It's a time to hear about the triumph of light over darkness. And um, the liturgy really centers along the Paschal candle. It's lit for the first time, and we have the opportunity to see that Paschal candle lit at a fire in front of the church. And uh, that Paschal light, however, is not, does not remain with the fire, does not remain with the light itself. It remains with us. And we carry our many Paschal candles uh, that uh, are lit, each one in this case, not lit from person to person, but we want those people to light it directly from the light of Christ. And uh, individuals receive that light, and it's a reminder of baptism, how they receive that many Paschal candle in many of our churches um, on the day of their baptism, in that light of Christ, that he 
you know, darkness did not overcome him. He won, he won victory over, over sin, death, and the power of hell. That light is ours in our baptism, even as Christ has triumphed over, over every, every sin and power of Satan. So it's a service of candlelight, service of, of, of light and darkness, and a service which really centers in our congregation on the baptismal font, around baptism. There's, there's the litany of the resurrection, there's a renewal of our baptismal vows that are spoken. What a joy to consider what God has done for us in baptism and rejoice in the new life that is ours. And uh, this service was uh, very historic in, 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 in the history of, of, of our church, our churches, that um, um, uh, the night before uh, Easter was a time where people gathered. It was a time to hang out at church. It was a time for confirmations where the long preparation for um, the long preparation for um, being confirmed in the church, being baptized, being uh, admitted into the fellowship of, of those who receive Holy Communion uh, was, was uh, completed. And so people, um, people gathered all night for, for these readings and for uh, baptism that was all, all often administered at sunrise. So in our congregation, we, we start the night with this and we ended with, uh, with sunrise in the morning, but we, we do go home and try to get a few hours of hours of sleep. <laughs> but one thing I wanted to mention about that Paschal candle is um, I found some, uh, some it's, it is the largest candle in our churches, and had the opportunity to go to a museum called the Cloisters in New York City uh, some years ago, and I, the largest Paschal candle that I'd, I'd ever seen, it was, the stand itself was, was six feet high, and I did, a, I did a little research on this, and I found out actually that um, in the Middle Ages, sometimes it was a um, it, it was a, a kind of a competition to see which church could have the largest Paschal candle, and um, it was rather interesting. Um, I learned that um, in 1558, 300 pounds of wax was used for the Paschal candle in the Westminster Abbey, and that in the Salisbury Cathedral in England, it was said in the Middle Ages to have a Paschal candle that was 36 feet tall. Wow. <laughs> what this what this uh, taught me, and it's something I didn't really ever ever realize about the Paschal candle, is that it represents the pillar of fire that led the people um, by night, and the pillar of cloud that led the people by day. It, it totally makes sense when you when you think of that in that way. That that's the that pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud that led the people of old. Um, you know, as that pillar of you know, what did that pillar of cloud and fire do? You know, it met them at the Red Sea. It led them uh, along the way. It, it directed them upon their journeys. It protected them uh, from their enemies. Uh, God even spoke through that pillar of cloud uh, as well to Moses and to his people. And um, that, that, that light is Christ. And, and that pillar of uh, a fire and light is indeed Christ who walks forth from the tomb to lead us on our journeys, to meet us upon the way and indeed to, um, to lead us forth, to, to protect us from our enemies, and to, to show us the way indeed to the promised inheritance of eternal life. Sunday morning's busy at our congregation. We have Easter sunrise service, and uh, that's at 6 a.m. And, you know, what a, uh, we've got uh, some new acolytes, and uh, they're, they're participating um, in Holy Week uh, for the first time. Sometimes it's their uh, some, for some of them, it's their first time to, to acolyte. One of them, my son, actually, um, Augustus is his name, 
um, you know, he helped with the stations of the cross last night, carrying that cross around to each station. You should have seen the smile on his face as he bowed the first time to go up to, uh, to light the candle. And he turned around and looked at his sister, which, which was in the pew. What, what a joy um, to, to give these children something to do that's meaningful, to lead our, uh, our congregations in worship and indeed um, point, uh, point our people to, to the things that matter. In their joy, we see indeed uh, what matters. We've got a new acolyte also helping out at uh, sunrise service. And uh, we, uh, we walk out in darkness. Church is, is still in darkness, so the lilies are there, and uh, we smell them, and uh, we see the joy, but it's not quite yet. The Easter Gospel um, is, is read, uh, the traditional Easter Gospel of um, St. John, uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, her weeping, and Jesus coming to her, saying, calling her by name, right, as Jesus calls us each by name, saying, Mary, Mary, you know, and we say, Rabboni, teacher, you're alive, you're here. Um, for you, yes, for you. And uh, we, we uh, read that lesson, and then I have the opportunity to just look at the people and say, you know, Alleluia, Christ is risen, and they, they respond, He's risen indeed, Alleluia. You know, I've, I, in our congregation we have a bell, and you know, that, that bell is normally rung 30 minutes before the service to tell the people it's time for church. And... Um, um, we don't ring it 30 minutes before the sunrise service at 5.30 in the morning. Um, but we do ring that once I, once a year. Okay, so it's we, we normally have 8.30 service, so it's normally rung at 8. But um, um, our bell ringer in the congregation has the opportunity, once he hears those words, Christ is risen indeed, to ring that bell. And I've instructed him to look at Doc Ferber's house across the street, and when he sees the lights turn on in Doc Ferber's house, he can stop ringing the bell. <laughs> and uh, so we we have a little bit of joy, and that joy spreads out into our lives and into our community, even as we take that resurrection, that, that message that Jesus is risen alive, uh, spreads even to those who don't come to the walls of, of our congregation. We have a matin service in our congregation, one time a year that we do celebrate uh, um Matins. That was the old page 32 in the old TLH hymnal, and um, um, we we celebrate the matin service uh, primarily because of the singing of the Te Deum. Um, uh, what a joyful uh, song and confession of what uh, what Christ has done. And uh, then we have our uh, Easter breakfast um, done by the the youth. Hey, we have workers in our congregation that. Uh, that work at Johnsonville Sausage. So we have great breakfast sausages here at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Adel, Wisconsin. And um, uh, Tony Hoffman just brought them over yesterday straight from Johnsonville. So um, good sausages in the morning. And then, and then we have our Easter communion at 8.30, and that's the high point of the Easter celebration uh, as, we, um, we, as we celebrate. You know, this is the feast of victory to our God, um, the feast of joy that we and all heaven participate uh, in, even here in Adel, you know, with uh, 85 and a sum, uh, Sunday normally, 130 on Easter, we rejoice to receive the Lord's gifts and and, and sing our praises of, of, of what Christ has done, what he has done for us, apart from any merit worthiness uh, in us, um, indeed, uh, what he did alone. You know, he's like, he's like the David that faced Goliath. But he came back. You know, if the king doesn't come back from, from battle, you know, indeed what? Uh, there's defeat. But our king has come back 
which means what? There's victory uh, over every sin that he took to the cross, over uh, every death that we face, over every, every kind of suffering. Um, our king is back, and his, his coming back alone proclaims uh, the victory that is ours. So that's, that's a joyful Easter week here in a little congregation. Well, thanks be, of, yeah. thanks be to God. We are all out of time, but if you want to read more, Pastor Cypherline has written a piece called Lent and Easter 101 in the Lutheran Witness. You can find it in the online version of the Lutheran Witness, Lent and Easter 101, with more about the, uh, the Lent and Holy Week and Easter. Pastor Cypherline, thank you so much for being my guest today here on Faith and Family. It was a privilege to talk with you. God's blessings this, uh, this Holy Week. Thanks very much. More sermons to write. Appreciate it. <laughs> God's peace. Bye. Coming up in just a little bit, the Case for Christ movie. Maybe you've seen it in uh, in the movie theaters. Maybe you've seen the posters for it or seen it online. Uh, I'll check it out with the pastor Chad Hoover from Concordia Lutheran High School in Fort Wayne. Up next. Concordia University, Wisconsin in Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Late-term abortionist Deshaun Taylor was asked what happens when a baby survives an abortion and is born alive. Her response was chilling. The key is you need to pay attention to who's in the room. She wasn't concerned about the baby's welfare. She was worried who'd witness her killing the child born alive. Taylor also expressed concern about her employees saying, I gotta worry about my staff and people's feelings about it coming out looking like a baby. Her conscience was already seared, but she can't risk having her staff seeing the blunt reality of the work they're involved in. This, my friend, is the ugly and deadly reality of abortion. It's why I've dedicated my life to ending it. Please pray our efforts will succeed in stopping all abortion. Follow us on Twitter at Life Issues USA and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk, host of His Time and Cross Defense here on KFUO, inviting you to join us for share 2017, April 20th through the 22nd. During share 2017, you'll enjoy your favorite guests and program hosts as we celebrate the ministry and mission of Worldwide KFUO. Our annual share is a great time for your continued prayers and support. Celebrate KFUO and have fun with all your radio friends during share 2017, April 20th through 22nd. Join Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org kit to download the Refugee Sunday kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. lirs.org kit. Dear John, I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is serious, and I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to when you checked on me? I don't want to leave. But remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. 
Listen to your heart. Don't let it quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range today. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Want to be actively engaged in meaningful service and put your time and talents into action? Volunteer Connection engages, equips, and empowers individuals to serve the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and its national and international ministries at the International Center. Come join us as together we make known the love of Christ. To learn more about Volunteer Connection, please call 314-996-1629. A long-standing tradition at Worldwide KFUO is to broadcast two live worship services for those unable to attend or for those who benefit from hearing God's Word online or on KFUO. From Peace Lutheran Church in South St. Louis County, Missouri, Senior Pastor Dennis Castens leads the worship service at 8 a.m. The live late service at 1045 comes from Hope Lutheran Church in St. Anne, Missouri, where Reverend Tim Ostermeyer is Senior Pastor. Hear the message of mercy and forgiveness during Sunday morning worship on Worldwide KFUO. You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Every once in a while, we try to uh, to make our way to the movie theater, see what's on the big screen, and uh, particularly when there is a film that uh, that well that's related to the the scriptures or carries a religious theme. And most recently, The Case for Christ, a um, a, a book by the same name, released a couple decades ago, I believe, and now uh, on the screen. And to help us review that today, the Reverend Chad Hoover, Theology Department Chair and Director of Integrated Campus Ministry at Concordia Lutheran High School in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Hoover, welcome back to Faith and Family. Thanks, Andy. So when you first heard about uh, this film, The Case for Christ, what came to mind when you first heard that this is on the screen? Well, a couple of things. First of all, I'm familiar with the book because I've, I've read the book, um, read it a number of years ago. And then also in the New Testament class that we teach as we're talking about Christ, uh, we use the student edition of the book for the, for the class. So we, we, I'm familiar with it. Uh, so that was a good thing. Um, then, of course, then that other aspect of me is a little skeptical because Christian movies aren't usually uh, very well received in the media and, um, and usually aren't very well done. And so I was a little nervous about uh, a, mo- a movie like this coming out that was going to be following more of a narrative structure, and I didn't know exactly how they were going to do it. Well, what do you mean? Well, what do you mean? They, I, I think I have an idea of what you mean here, but what do you mean by when, when it comes to Christian movies, sometimes they aren't very well done? Well, I mean, usually they'll... they'll um, Oh, for lack of a better word, they're kind of sappy, uh, and they don't. Uh, it's really hard to capture good theology in um, in a movie. Uh, that's, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, uh, movies like um, the what's that, the Love Dare one <laughs> with Kirk Cameron right, and, right. and that Church of of the. Mm-hmm. They they do all of those uh, movies with the the members of their congregation, which. It, for the most part, they're well done, mm-hmm. but these are not actors who are who are in the movies. Kirk Cameron was the only one. Right, uh, not a lot of seasoned actors, yeah. Yeah, and so you know, typically it's it's usually the production value is pretty low on films like this. Um, uh, studios aren't really willing to back movies like this, 
and so you, you get a less than stellar product and uh, they don't usually do well at the box office, which everyone's very worried about. Um, so I wasn't, you know, my expectations weren't great going into the movie, um, but I was very curious because I know the book and I know who Lee Strobel is and I know, um, you know, the other resources that are available that go along with this book. And these are all good things. Who is, uh, so I was curious, who is Lee Strobel? Uh, what what do you know about him? And, and and we'll get more into his book as well. Sure. Who is Lee Strobel? Well, Lee Strobel um, is the author of the book, The Case for Christ. And the reason why he wrote this book initially is because he was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. And so he was a journalist and, and he wanted to investigate the claims of Christianity as to, you know, are they valid? Are they things that you can actually believe in the things that are trustworthy or you have to follow Christianity with some sort of blind faith. And the first time I read this book, which I said was a number of years ago, um, I could see his struggle, you know, with, he was truly investigating this, trying to discover for himself whether or not it was true. And, and it's, you know, the big billing of, of Lee Strobel is he was an atheist turned Christian. And, and that's very true. And that's shown in the film too, that he is not a person who, who believes any of these things, and then he investigates them, and through his investigation, he, he comes to, to understand the truth about Christ. And then since then, um, you know, he's gone on to author over 20 books, and, and a lot of them have that same title, like The Case for something, The Case for Faith, The Case for Grace, I think is his latest one. Um, and currently, he's, um, he's a teaching pastor at Woodlands Church in Texas, and he's also a professor of Christian thought at Houston Baptist University. Um, so he's really gone through quite a turnaround uh, in his life from, from when he started out as a journalist at the Chicago Tribune, uh, denying uh, the claims of Christianity. And he wasn't just some Joe Schmo journalist. I mean, he's, he as a journalist, he was a, quite a top-notch journalist. He, I, I was doing a little reading on him as well, an undergrad at uh, Mizzou, University of Missouri here, and uh, also grad work at Yale Law School, a master of uh, legal studies, I believe. So when he was at the Tribune, he was particularly focused on legal affairs. Yes, and I liked that the movie showed this. I mean, it, it starts out by introducing Lee Strobel, um, the character in the movie, you know, who's based on the real man, it introduces him getting an award, you know, from his editor and the, all the people are around him celebrating this big promotion that he got at the Chicago Tribune. So they're showing that he's, he's, a, he's an accomplished uh, person as far as his, his vocation at the, the Chicago Tribune is concerned. Uh, he, he's not just some, you know, some, some guy who, who's of no consequence there. He, he's a pretty big name. So as the story's told in the movie, he not only is a journalist, but other vocations. He's a husband and a father. Uh, it, it, as the, the film begins, he's the, the father of, well, um, we see his oldest daughter there. She's probably like, uh, what, early early grade school, maybe preschool, yeah. somewhere around there. And then uh, and then his wife is also pregnant in the, the beginning yeah. scenes of the, the film. So yes, and this is and that's based on truth as well. He does have, in real life, uh, an older daughter and a younger son who are now grown and adults. Uh, in the movie, you know they're very young and, and newborn, but now they're they are adults themselves. What do we learn about him and his relationships and his beliefs in the the early part of this film? You mentioned earlier he's a he's a journalist, but he's and he's an atheist. Yes, um, 
the and this is actually one aspect of the of the film that I liked, uh, <laughs> which I I saw that relationship between uh, Lee Strobel and his wife Leslie as being very believable and realistic. I liked the way they portrayed them on screen. Um, it, it, Lee Strobel is is a, a good father. You know, he's he's a loving father. He loves his wife. He loves his daughter. He cherishes his marriage, um, but at the same time. He, uh, you know, his young daughter, uh, after a near-death experience at the restaurant, um, asks the question, who is Jesus? Because the lady who helped them at the restaurant um, talked about, you know, thanking Jesus that she was there. And um, as the daughter asks this question, again, I think the film did a good job of, of portraying this as well. It, it gave us an insight into, into Lee's mind as far as what he believed about Jesus and about what the Bible says about him. I mean, he basically explains it to his daughter that these are like fairy tales. There is no basis in reality for any of the stories that are told there. You, you can't see Jesus. You can't touch him. He's not real. And then he, he told his daughter, we're atheists because we believe in what we can see and we believe in what we can touch and, and we believe in facts. We believe in human reason. Uh, we need to understand something before we can believe it. And then his cute little daughter says, oh, I guess I'm an atheist too. Yeah. <laughs> so he's uh, kind of pushing that uh, belief on his daughter. Uh, and then the wife later on you know, says, I thought we were going to let her choose her own path. And he's like, she asked. Um, and so he, he's uh, sharing with her his atheistic views, whereas his wife, on the other hand, and this is the whole crux of the story, um, is, is, is being drawn to the church because of this experience through the very person that uh, that rescued their daughter at the when she was choking at the the restaurant yes. yeah yes. the the nurse who who rescued their daughter and uh, and so the his wife Leslie builds a relationship with um, with this nurse Alfie uh, who continues to to invite her to church and to befriend her and uh, and to to speak of grace and uh, and words of comfort to her how is so then how does his wife handle this this uh newfound faith how does how does she deal with her new faith at home then in her relationship with with Lee who is a devout atheist and, and again this is another part of the movie that i really enjoyed too that i thought was very well done um that it because it's very true when you have a relationship like that where you have a husband and wife who are on the same page, you know, they're, they're moving along in life at, at the same level, you know, and then one, the wife, becomes a Christian. And, and, and I like the way they showed that, too, because she, she goes to church with Alfie. Um, she hears the message of the gospel, which, truthfully, was probably about the only time in the movie that, that was really ever stated clearly <laughs> when she was in church. Um, and, sh and she becomes a Christian, and she starts talking to her husband about this, and, and he um, reacts in a way that is just, you've joined a cult, he's angry at the church for filling her head with nonsense, he's saying, you're not the woman that I married, um, there's a great line in there, too, where he's like, you're cheating on me with Jesus. <laughs> he just felt like mm -hmm. his wife ought to be devoting herself to him and only him, and yet now she has this devotion to Christ, and, and he sees it as um, an assault on their marriage, uh, because this is not what he signed up for. This was not the woman 
that he married. And uh, it's, uh, it's very realistic, I think, in the way that it shows that, that struggle within that relationship uh, when you're not equally yoked. I mean, the scriptures talk about that mm-hmm. too, being equally yoked. Well, this happens where she then sees that there is a need for their family uh, to have Christ in that family, and, and the husband says no. But she stands her ground when he becomes reactionary and confrontational regarding her newfound faith. Uh, when, when he becomes reactionary, she tries to have a civilized conversation with him, but he, he lashes out, and she simply points out, I'm not, you know, I'm not being angry, I'm simply talking and listening. It, you know, she's, it, she, she appeals to his, his intellect and reason, in a sense, when, when she, she says, I, I, I'm simply trying to have a conversation, I'm simply hoping that you'll listen. Yes, and there's um, there's a lot of that struggle there. That again, that's a difficult thing to portray uh, you know, on screen. I think as far as a very realistic struggle within a marriage, you know, and and I thought they, I think I thought they did a good job of that um, because the the wife was not she didn't the actress did not appear to be like playing it like yeah I'm just crazy and I'm just just a blind faith sort of thing, but she was she was talking about the reality of what she experienced at the church. Um, there were some aspects of that that I, you know, the, the Lutheran pastor in me would, would say, oh, wouldn't it be great if she could have talked about <laughs> the reality of the sacrament or something? Or couldn't it, wouldn't it be great if she talked about the, the objective, you know, uh, basis that God calls us to him through baptism or something? They did show a baptism in the, in the movie, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't baptism in the understanding that we have of baptism, that it's God working through the Holy Spirit, bringing us to faith, uh, these aspects were missing. It For her, it was more uh, based on her experiences and what she felt. I, it feels real to me. And so, and actually her husband kind of argued with her about that. Like, yeah, you can't say that it feels real to you. You know, that, that's not a basis for reality. Um, whereas if, if she could have pointed to the sacraments, uh, I think that would have helped as, as tangible things that she could have really hung her faith on as far as this is why I believe, because God works through these means. Sure. At one point, she says it, it. It feels real, so real. It's it feels more real than anything else I've ever felt yeah. in my life. And you can see his reaction, his body language, and his reaction to that. As and he, I think he storms out the door at that point. And she says, "Where are you going?" He said, "To file a missing persons report." Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Basically saying, where is my wife? She's not here. This is not the person I married. And she's found something more important than me or anything that I could give her. Yeah. Hmm. So where does he go then? Who does he, to whom does he turn in his frustration and, and trying to, to figure out answers and how to fix his marriage? Because he's, he's obviously concerned about his marriage. Yes. Um, and and actually too, I mean, this is this is one of the aspects of the movie that in the that's the bell telling people to go to lunch, but I'm not that doesn't concern us. Uh, in the movie, he's con, uh, concerned about his marriage. He's very concerned about his marriage, and it almost is the driving force behind everything that he does. He is so concerned for his wife, who is this not the person he he married, and you know she's gone now, and he wants her back. That that he he wants to prove her wrong. He wants to prove that Christianity is wrong. 
and um, and and it does. And this is where he goes to one of his his mentors, which I guess was somebody he worked at the newspaper with. I, I wasn't exactly sure who that guy was, um, but he was telling him, "Oh, I've been through this before. You know, my daughter had the same problem, and here's what I did." And he's throwing him all of these atheistic books and and trying to just present him with all of the stuff on that side of things, as far as you know, convince her using these things. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, he realizes that this isn't going to work, that what he really needs to do is come at it from the point of view of, of a Christian and say, I'm going to use their own stuff to show that it's unreliable, that it's a faith that doesn't make sense, that you're, you're not basing it on any sort of reality. And I'm going to use their text. I'm going to use everything that they present, and I'm going to show that this is this is can be debunked. You know, this is not true, and that's where the whole investigative uh, perspective comes from. You know, that he's investigating the case for Christ to see if there's any validity here at all, uh, in order to to get her out of this this cult. You know, that that he said she was was uh, living in. Um, that that he wanted to debunk Christianity from the inside. And so, one of his first steps in doing that. It, it, he makes use of his professional connections right there at the, the Tribune. He goes to the religion editor. Yeah. And he says, if you were going to debunk this, you know, what what would you start with? And this was great. And and, and, is, and this is actually the, the, the crux of the argument for the students in my classes, too, is if you can disprove the resurrection, then you disprove Christianity. You know, if you can show... That the resurrection was not, did not actually happen, then Christianity has no leg to stand on. The only reason uh, that Christianity ultimately has survived all of these years is because of the resurrection of Christ. If Christ didn't raise, wasn't raised from the dead, Christianity itself is dead. Uh, and that was a great answer for that guy to give, yeah. uh, because that really led him on the journey of okay, well, I got to figure out if this, you know, if I can debunk that, then then. I can say that this is all bogus, and and she can get out of this uh, this church that she's being involved in. So then, where does he go for his investigation? To where does he start digging in and trying to find these answers? Well, he's going to various scholars, and actually, I I, I looked in the book to see you know where um, the the people that he interviewed in the movie. They're actual people. I mean, these are these are not just made up characters. You know, these are people that he actually went to. He goes to various scholars who have different disciplines or different areas of expertise uh, as far as um, you know the 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 reliability of the scriptures or the reliability of Christ's testimony that he is God or the you know the possibility that maybe this was a, a huge hallucination on the part of all these people who. Thought they saw Jesus alive after his death, or he goes to a, a a physician who's able to talk about the effects of crucifixion, and um, and they did about actually in the movie about half of the people that he actually interviewed for the book. In the book, he interviewed I think twelve people, and in the movie they maybe well they maybe even showed four or five. Mm-hmm. Um, so they didn't quite get to the to the number of people that he was able to interview for the book. But he goes to experts. Uh, in various fields of Christian study, uh, to talk to them and see, you know, what they had to say about these things, uh, hoping to to find, you know, a hole in the in the theory, as it were, uh, as far as Christ. As a matter of fact, one of them, I think, is the medical doctor the, that he goes to 
to meet with and, and continue his investigation, particularly on uh, the uh, crucifixion and could someone actually survive a crucifixion? Right. He travels to, um, I think he travels to what, Los Angeles or Southern California. He travels yeah. across the country. I can't remember exactly where he traveled. And while he's away, his, uh, or uh, while he's away on one of these uh, investigations, he his wife gives birth to their second child. Yes. <laughs> totally misses it. And it does take so you... caught up in the investigation, yeah. It takes you back to the 80s because, you know, we're thinking, oh, she should try calling him on the cell phone. But this is back in the 80s, so she's paging him on his pager. Right. <laughs> yeah. But again, it was the 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 nurse who rescued their daughter at the uh, when she was choking at the the restaurant. It was this same nurse who had befriended Leslie, who uh, who came and, and and picked her up and took her to the hospital when when she was uh, going into labor. What does he then discover in his investigation as he contacts and, and, and questions all of these experts? What does he learn in each of these? As you mentioned, we only see four or five of them in the film. Right. But one leads to another, really. Yeah. And, it, and if you look you know, at in the Case for Christ book, I mean, he really this this is a it's not a short book. <laughs> it's it's a mm-hmm. it's about 250 pages um, or more. And um, in the end. He, he gives the conclusion, you know, as far as the verdict, you know, like, okay, I've shown all of these interviews with all of these scholars and talked about all of these things that really need to line up in order to, to really have this story make sense and, and be able to verify it. Uh, and in his, his conclusion, he, he concludes a number of things. First of all, he concludes that the biographies about Christ can be trusted, and that would be the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says, as far as um, historically reliable documents are concerned, these are historically reliable documents. And, and it does say it in the movie, and I, and I appreciate the way they address this in the movie, though it, it, it barely scratches the surface as far as really coming to a full understanding of it, is just how much we have as far as uh, textual criticism with the New Testament, with the number of manuscripts that we have in comparison to other ancient documents. Uh, it is it's you know upwards of over 5,000 New Testament documents, whereas in other ancient documents, it's much, much, much less. It's in the hundreds. So the historical reliability of the New Testament is much greater. So he, he shows that uh, in the book and also in the movie. Um, one of the things that he didn't talk about a whole lot in the – they didn't talk about a whole lot in the movie, but in the book he does, uh, is that there are outside sources that support the biblical accounts as well. Um, things like um, writings about Jesus or archaeological finds, that these things do not contradict the Scriptures at all, but if, if anything, they, they show how reliable the Scriptures are, uh, that these things did actually happen, that the, the places that they're talking about were actually there. Um, you can find other writings that talk about this Jesus of Nazareth and, and the fact that the tomb was empty. Uh, and that's that's one of the other things that, um, that the movie did talk about, too, that w- without a doubt, the tomb really was empty. Uh, that it it was found in other ancient writings that this tomb of Jesus was empty that it, he was put there but then it was he was gone uh, it doesn't prove that he resurrected you know the empty tomb doesn't uh, what proves that he resurrected and, and he shows this in the movie too is that he proved himself to be alive because he showed himself to many people as the resurrected Christ um, up to you know 500 people at one time. Uh, and then also one of the things they talked about in the, in the book and in the movie is that uh, the, some of the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. And then he, he's balked at that. Well, why would, 
you know, women's testimonies were unreliable back then. Why would they say that he, he re- resurrected and showed himself to women? And then um, the, the man answers, well, doesn't that just show that they just wrote it down truthfully as, as it actually happened rather than trying to make it sound better than it really was? You know, that, oh, no, it wasn't women that he showed himself to. It was these other people or something. Uh, you know, so, so it shows that Jesus really did rise from the dead because, uh, first of all, the, the biographies, which can be trusted, say that he did. And also there were eyewitnesses that saw him alive, up to 500 at one time. Um, so those are things in the movie that they did a really good job of talking about. We, we had talked about earlier, too, the, the effects of crucifixion. He goes and talks to one person to say there's no way Jesus could have you know, faked his death or just, you know, they, did it, they thought he was dead, but he really wasn't. And so he was never, you know, the crucifixion didn't kill him. Uh, no, he was dead. And one of the things that showed that he was dead, too, was the, you know, the, the account in John's Gospel where they pierce his side with the spear and blood and water, flow out, uh, that this shows that, that he had died of asphyxiation, that he, he, he was dead on the cross. There was no way he would have survived that. The, the Romans were professional killers. Uh, there's no way they would have left him alive. Uh, one of the things that they didn't talk about in the movie, but is in the book, which I actually really like to talk about with my, uh, with my students, is the fact that Jesus fits the bill for the Messiah as far as the Old Testament prophecies are concerned. Uh, that there are so many Old Testament prophecies that Jesus could have no power over as far as manipulating them in order to fit the, you know, fit the mold, um, that, that it, it proves that he is the one that God sent. Uh, because there is no way somebody could, could alter all of these things and make them fit their own life uh, based on just all the many, many, many Old Testament prophecies uh, concerning the coming Messiah. With just about a minute left, what did you oh like? I know. <laughs> what did you like? What did you not like about the the Case for Christ movie? Well, books are always better uh, than movies. <laughs> I think everybody can agree on that. Um, and also, there's there's a 2007 documentary called The Case for Christ, which Lee Strobel um, is in that movie, the actual Lee Strobel, where he interviews or re-interviews many of these people that he'd interviewed for his book originally. So that book, that movie goes into greater detail on all of these evidences for you know for Christ that that we just were, were talking about. Uh, as far as what I, I didn't like about the movie, I really think they missed a golden opportunity to talk about why Jesus died on the cross. Um, they didn't. I don't think they successfully answered that in the movie. There was one point where um, you know he asked, you know, why did he do it? And the answer was love. Like, oh, love? Yes, that's true. But <laughs> what about sin? What about conquering death? Um, I didn't see that there was a great need outside of I need to save my marriage for Lee Strobel to find the truth, um, whereas the truth affects all of us, regardless of whether we're married or unmarried, uh, because we're all sinful human beings in need of a Savior, and that Savior came. I think they missed the opportunity to really hit that one over the over the fence. The Reverend Chad Hoover, Theology Department Chair and Director of Integrated Campus Ministry at Concordia Lutheran High School, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Hoover, thanks so much for being my guest again on Faith and Family. You're welcome. Listen to Faith and Family Monday through Friday at this time. Faith and Family is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is needed for Faith and Family to continue. Our address is 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can contact us on the web and download Faith and Family at KFUO.org. Worldwide KFUO, on the air, online, and on demand.